Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Right, so the uh, premier today announcing um, part of this uh, economic recovery strategy, which he says is still a work in progress, uh, but clearly there are a number of pretty substantial economic challenges we are facing here in Alberta uh, related to the pandemic, also related to the crash in oil prices and the uh, continued unbalance between supply and demand. Now, to some extent, these are circumstances outside of our control. Uh, you know, we can have our own response to the pandemic, but obviously we're not in the driver's seat when it comes to ending this pandemic. So what happens elsewhere is gonna have an impact. Same thing with the price of oil. There's obviously only so much we can do with regard to supply and, and certainly with regard to demand. And so that those are, those are two challenges that really have a huge impact on what's gonna happen with Alberta's economy, uh, certainly in the coming months or the next couple of years. Which isn't to say that the government is powerless here. So today the Premier announcing a $10 billion investment in infrastructure, uh, a plan to create 50,000 jobs this year uh, to try to make Alberta more competitive by accelerating uh, the corporate tax reduction. So 8% was supposed to be a couple of years from now, or a year and a half from now. Uh, that will be the rate as of July 1st. Uh, there's some other targeted programs, an innovation employment grant, for example, uh, targeted to smaller companies and trying to encourage uh, technology and investment in Alberta. So the government says there's a diversification component to all of this. Uh, joining us uh, for some further thoughts uh, on, on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Trevor Toom, Associate Professor of uh, Economics at the University of Calgary, a research fellow at the School of Public Policy. Trevor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so there, there's a lot here, obviously. I mean, the, the idea of uh, infrastructure spending, new spending, accelerated spending, that's a pretty typical go-to for, for governments when facing economic challenges. But wh what does the evidence tell us, first of all, with regard to infrastructure spending as, as stimulus? Well, as stimulus, it can have, in, in, in normal times or normal recessions, a pretty limited effect in terms of overall economic activity and job creation. And, and that's certainly true when you look at the cost per job of increasing infrastructure spending. Um, it's, it's just not an efficient way to increase employment or GDP if that's the goal. Which is, which is not to say we, we shouldn't do it. Uh, projects will have benefits and costs that can be evaluated in terms of their own merits. And if we're investing in projects that make sense, that have benefits that exceed the cost, great. I think it's a go-to option for governments often because there's a pipeline of projects that are being planned for for next year and the year after. And so it's fairly easy at the margins to try and accelerate some things that were gonna happen anyway, just in the future. Uh, and but ten billion in this announcement, that is a, a large increase in the capital plan and brings us to basically the peak level 
of infrastructure spending that we saw under the previous government during the last recession when you adjust for inflation. Uh, on the question then of accelerating projects, which, which is interesting, if if we have a plan, say, for example, to, to build infrastructure projects this year, next year, the year after, mm-hmm. and, and let's just say, you know, we're, we're expecting 10,000 jobs to be created each year. If you accelerate all of that into year one and you get mm-hmm. 30,000 jobs in year one, but you don't see those new jobs in year two or year three, are you mm-hmm. necessarily any, any further along or any better off? Well, you may be better off, even if at the end of year three, you're not any further along in terms of what the projects you have built are. During a moment like this, where you have a very concentrated level of slack in the labor market, and construction was also a pretty hard hit sector, to be sure. Uh, If you can alleviate and bridge people through this kind of crisis situation, even though demand for construction, employment, and jobs two years from now might be a little lower, that's a trade I think that one could reasonably make. You're trying to smooth out the shock rather than actually increase where we are in terms of a level at the end of the three years, if you will. On the uh, corporate tax side, we talked before Mm -hmm. about uh, corporate tax reductions and and what the economic evidence tells us about their benefits. Mm -hmm. I wonder, though, I mean, given that we knew 8% 8% was coming, and, and companies yeah. have been planning for that. How, how much difference does it make, do you think, then, to, to accelerate that? I think that's the right question. Businesses are were making plans around the phased reduction to 8% and the extent to which a business is going to be investing in a long-lived project or facility or operation, then they would be making their calculations based on 8%. So accelerating it doesn't change for that businesses uh, or for that business, their decision to enter or not Alberta. But right now, what makes this a unique moment from an economic policy perspective is that the level of uncertainty is really high. Various measures of uncertainty exist. And roughly speaking, the uncertainty, uh, economic policy uncertainty for May in Canada is double where it was in May of 2019. So a lot of businesses are pushing the pause button, waiting to see how all this shakes out. And there, I think, there was a legitimate uh, concern, if you will, around whether or not the phased reduction was actually going to happen. I mean, we're going in as as, as a province into a very tough period fiscally for the budget. And I think a sensible business might think, well, can we count on that 8%? And what this announcement does is eliminates the uncertainty. Um, It's 8%, and it's going to be 8% in the future. You can count on it. And that may have value. It's it's tough to quantify. I can't tell you the, the job creation or economic activity that results from it. But I think uncertainty being as high as it is right now, anything the government can do to anchor the expectations of businesses and investors can have real benefits. So I mentioned as well, I mean, there, there's talk about diversification, and, and maybe that's that's one way of, of getting there, to try to make your jurisdiction uh, attractive to, to mm-hmm. all sectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, too, there, there's some targeted measures here. The government's been criticized for maybe not doing enough of that, but... You know, we, we keep hearing this word diversification, and there are a lot of different ideas for, for what it means and, and how we get there. So what do you make of that, first of all, and, and what do you see here in this plan? 
Well, and, and we've talked about this before. Diversification is just this buzzword that rears its head uh, in bad times in particular, but is always here in Alberta. We're always talking about it, and yet no one is actually saying specifically what they mean by diversification or how a specific project will um, advance us towards that amorphous uh, goal. When you look at where jobs are in Alberta, how evenly they are spread across sectors, across occupations, and so on, you see that Alberta's actually very diverse already in terms of the pattern of employment relative to other provinces. And we don't have more frequent recessions than other jurisdictions. We don't have deeper or longer lasting recessions than than other provinces. I mean, that sounds... Um, odd because we are coming out of a fairly deep and fairly long live recession, but just mm -hmm. in terms of the data, we behave very much like economies elsewhere, where we have a diversification challenge in the sense that we have high levels of volatility is in income. Incomes in Alberta go up and down quite a bit, but most of that is corporate profits. And that's, that's a diversification challenge for sure for investors, but not really a public policy problem. Uh, so I always get concerned or the hair on the back of my neck stands up when I hear a policy being motivated by a desire to increase diversification because it's never said exactly what that means. So I fear when governments go too far down that line and provide subsidies and cash transfers to favored businesses or sectors that don't actually have a competitive advantage in Alberta that will simply fail the moment the government's support is withdrawn. And we saw a lot of that in Alberta's past. It's interesting, too, and the Premier talked about this being a work in, pro, uh, work in progress, and, and they've obviously got um, their, their panel set up, this economic advisory panel, and some big names on that list, including, including of course, Dr. Jack Mintz from the uh, mm -hmm. School of Public Policy at the U of C. Uh, are, are we expecting more? I think what we see here is not necessarily what would be classified as sort of an outside-the-box kind of an approach. That's right. uh, should we expect more, do you think? Well, I, I agree. It's not outside the box. Lowering taxes and increasing infrastructure spending, these are textbook countercyclical policy right. measures um, here and elsewhere. Uh, I think the Premier, though, was quite clear, and it's evident in the documents they released today, that there's going to be a lot more to come, a lot more details. And this was just the start of what will, I hope, actually be many more announcements, because there's a lot more that the government can do and probably will do and should do to support economic recovery on the other side of of this crisis. You know, I understand they can't do it all at one time, especially at a moment like like this. They've had their hands full for, for many months, but nonetheless, um, there's a lot more to come. Indeed. So we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Trevor, I always appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here. All right. Thank you. All right, take care. That is uh, Trevor Toom, Associate Professor, Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the U of C. Some thoughts from him on what we heard from the Premier today and what might still be to come in terms of some big, bold economic strategy. I don't know that you would classify this as, as bold in terms of, wow, I didn't see that coming. As Trevor Toom says, I mean, it's, it's fairly conventional when it comes to stimulus and maybe the government's kind of borrowing from both sides uh, of the political aisle. We're going to lower taxes. We're also going to increase infrastructure spending. And, and let's hope that just you know, doing all of that, some of this will stick. And what about going forward in terms of really thinking outside the box in terms of ideas for the economy?
So it's quite a stark contrast yesterday. Now, granted, Arizona is a bigger state than Alberta, just over 7 million people in Arizona, about 4.4 million in Alberta. About 100 times more COVID-19 cases confirmed in Arizona yesterday. They had uh, just over 3,800 cases. Alberta posted 39. But you think how overwhelmed we'd be here in Alberta. I mean, we saw at our peak, I think the highest number we saw in terms of daily case count was uh, just over 300. That requires a lot of work in in doing contact tracing and trying to find other cases. I don't know how a state copes with that kind of a number. Over 9,000 cases they've been posting in, in recent days in Florida. And that's every day. How do you do contact tracing for that many cases? and try to stay one step ahead. That's the real challenge. Doing a lot of testing is crucial, but then what you do with that information is is perhaps just as important. So in that sense, Alberta has fared well. We've had flare-ups, obviously. We had the uh, outbreak at the Cargill plant, the JBS plant. Even right now, there's a situation with an outbreak at a, a condo tower in the East Village in downtown Calgary. We saw on Saturday, the number of new cases jumped up to 69. The uh, Positive uh, rate on those tests was over 1%. So it was the first time we'd seen that in a few weeks. Uh, things looked a little bit better yesterday. So it's a reminder of, you know, the fact that this pandemic is, is far from being done with us and where we need to ensure that we can stay a step ahead. So joining us to talk a bit more about that and, and some other aspects of uh, what we've been seeing recently. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Craig Jenny, infectious disease researcher, associate professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Dr. Jenny, great to have you with us here. Welcome Hi. to the program. Glad to, glad to be with you. Yeah, first of all, as I mentioned, when you see a, a hundred times more cases, uh, you know, in Arizona versus uh, Alberta, just looking off yesterday, I mean, some of the numbers we're seeing in some of these states, it's, it's quite staggering, isn't it? Uh, it, it's you know scary. I mean, no other way to put it. Really, it, it's scary. It clearly shows what this virus is capable of, and I guess the upside is it actually shows how effective we have been here in Canada and in Alberta, in particular, in uh, in stopping the transmission. And it's a reminder too, I guess, that success is is never uh, a guarantee of a future success. And I, I think early on, maybe it seemed like Florida and, and Arizona were some of the states that had dodged a bullet, avoided the worst, and and now we're finally seeing that surge. So, you know, doing well today doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to do well tomorrow, right? No, and it, it highlights what happens when you make changes. So, uh, I think. Both of these examples of outbreak, including other places, California, Georgia, are clear examples of things were in a good place, and because of that, decisions were made to, for example, reopen specific segments of the economy, and and, uh, as a result, these viral changes uh, have stemmed from different human behavior. The virus itself really hasn't changed, and and we haven't changed as a host, um, but our behavior has, and that is what the virus has uh, been able to take advantage of. On the question of contact tracing, as I alluded to, I mean, you know, Arizona is a bit bigger than Alberta, obviously, but I, I can't imagine. I mean, even Alberta was posting half that. If we were posting a thousand or fifteen hundred new cases a day, I, I just can't imagine that we'd be able to stay on top of that in terms of of contact tracing. How 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 immense is that challenge when you got that that big of an outbreak happening? 
you're absolutely right. I mean, you would essentially need, and, and uh, we've seen some jurisdictions bringing in a literal army of, of contact tracers. Not only is it the absolute number, so you're you're absolutely correct that uh, a large number of cases requires a lot of, of tracking down who they may have contacted, but it's within the context of an open uh, community as well, where there are restaurants and businesses and everything else, that the number of contacts each individual case now has also goes up exponentially. So not only is it easier to do contact tracing with a small number of cases, it's much easier to do it when there is still some elements of social or physical isolation. So your number of contacts per day are quite low. We can track all of them down. When you are at the shopping mall and a restaurant and a bar, it becomes extremely difficult to identify all potential contacts. And on top of that, I mean, if you've got any kind of a lag in, in getting test results, I'd, I'd heard last week it was, you know, they were up to seven days to get results in Florida. Uh, that, that just makes the job that much more difficult, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and keep in mind, too, that you tend to test positive already three, four, five days after infection. So you're absolutely right. You're almost at the point of, of no longer transmitting the virus before they tell you you have the virus. So in terms of where Alberta's at, and we went through phase one of the relaunch, we're into phase two, and you know we, we've seen little problem spots here and there, but, but by and large, you know, given that we're seeing a positive rate that, that is pretty much consistently, with Saturday being the exception, stayed under 1%, uh, the daily case count numbers have, have held fairly steady. What, what do you make of what we've seen so far? I think what we've seen so far is very encouraging. So, so I think, you know, we have been able to begin to reopen uh, uh, safely, at least at this point. We have to keep in mind that normally the bigger spikes in viral numbers and or hospitalizations can be even four weeks after we change our behavior. So week one, week two, there's a handful of additional infections. By the time four weeks rolls around, that handful now becomes dozens uh, and, and potentially hundreds of cases. And we haven't seen that yet, so it's really encouraging. But it's also as these southern examples uh, remind us we have to remain vigilant so we can continue to reopen but we have to follow the guidelines and when we stop doing that when we do get relaxed about it there is the potential for larger outbreaks there's also another aspect to this and what we're seeing in terms of the median age of cases and dr hinshaw has has noted this as well that that seems to be skewing a bit lower these days here in alberta and, and that seems to be the case in other jurisdictions. I mean, is that, is that an example of us doing a better job of protecting older individuals? Is it indicative maybe of younger individuals not heeding this advice or, or thinking they're invincible? Or, or I don't know. What, what, what do you make of it? I think it's a combination of things. I think it's more of the, the younger individuals' infection rate going up as opposed to better protection of, of older individuals. I think we've been doing a good job all the way through in general of, of protecting Albertans. I think, unfortunately, younger individuals have a number of additional pressures, uh, including really a, a need to get back into the workforce so that they may not have uh, any financial cushion or, or, or job stability. Um, they tend to work jobs that are you know, more physical contact with coworkers. I'm thinking construction, agriculture, things of that nature where increased transmission. And then, of course, there is the social side of uh, typically if, if you're going by uh, 17th Avenue on a Friday night, it, it's not patios filled with 75-year-olds. Right. 
Um, which, yeah, and, and that, that would explain it. I mean, obviously, it's, it's a population that's less vulnerable, obviously, and, and maybe that explains why, um, you know, deaths are, are down even in, in, in some of these U.S. states, although I know that's, that's a lagging indicator and, and hospitalizations are still up in some states. So it, it doesn't mean we, we shouldn't be complacent, I guess, is what I'm saying, just because the, these numbers are, are skewing a bit younger. Yeah, and the, the, the critical piece, unfortunately, the young population, as you pointed out, in general, less severe disease. It doesn't mean it's safe. We have, unfortunately, lost uh, Albertans and Canadians in, in that younger demographic. But they also run the risk of spreading the virus to the more susceptible people. So if you're, for example, going out uh, to, to a bar on a Friday night and then picking up groceries... Uh, at, at a supermarket on, on, on Sunday or Monday, you have the risk of spreading your virus to people who are otherwise not engaging in the social activities and are out for essentials, be it medication, be it groceries. Um, there is risk of, of people who are not in that high severe disease category uh, of simply spreading the virus to those who are at risk. Right, and, and you know, and further to that, right, I mean, you know, there's there's the risk of death, there's a risk of hospitalization, and those are factors. But just in terms of the impact this disease can have on, on otherwise healthy people, we're learning more, aren't we, about some of these potential longer-term impacts that this can have. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's unfortunate, but the short answer is we, we really don't know. Um, we are seeing evidence of longer health effects and lingering effects uh, in basically all organ systems we look, cardiovascular, uh, kidney, as well as neurological. Um, so these are things we, we simply do not understand about this particular virus yet. And, you know, we, we do want to make sure we are taking all precautions we can at this point to avoid uh, unforeseen long-term consequences down the road. Absolutely. We'll leave it there uh, for now, Dr. Jenny. Appreciate the insight, uh, as always, and thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Anytime. Take care. All right, you as well. Uh, Dr. Greg Jenny, infectious disease researcher at the University of Calgary, associate professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases. His thoughts on how things are progressing in Alberta and, you know, the, the lesson we take from what some U.S. states are seeing and just the real difficult position it puts them in. It, it, when, when you have the, an outbreak of that scale, I mean, you go back and you look at New York, how long it took New York to turn things around. I mean, it's certainly doable, and, and the numbers they're seeing recently in New York are, are pretty encouraging. In New York City, even, uh, in some of the boroughs, they, they've, uh, in recent days, for example, had positive rates on their testing below 1%, which is quite remarkable when you think where they were a couple months ago. So that takes a long time, and I mean, New York had the added advantage of being in, in lockdown, more or less, while they were attempting to do this. So I don't know. There, there aren't a lot of great options at this point for some of these hard-hit states. And, you know, if you're not able to do effective contact tracing to try to get a step ahead of it, what do you do? So it's tough. So number of jurisdictions. I mean, Phoenix is an example. They just announced today in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, they're going to have uh, mandatory mask policies in place, which, given what they're dealing with, makes sense. Uh, like I say, there's not a lot of great options, but that, that seems like an easy one, a, a no-brainer. You know, they might have to make some tougher decisions. I know in some jurisdictions in the U.S., they've been closing bars, for example, and some in California and in Texas as well. Uh, it's a tough situation. And so it's a reminder here that that's not where we want to be. And, it, you know, there, there's nothing baked in that, that prevents it from ever happening here, right? It's, it's up to us to, to continue to be vigilant and continue with the, the progress we've made. 
Obviously, a big part of the COVID-19 story in, in Canada, not just here in Alberta and other provinces too, and in other countries, uh, has been the vulnerability uh, amongst those living in nursing homes and senior homes and long-term care. Obviously, uh, with uh, a certain age comes an increased vulnerability to the disease. But why weren't we able to do a better job uh, protecting these facilities, knowing that risk going in? And and look, I, there's obviously going to be a lot of um, hindsight review of this, as, as there should be. But it's not just about looking back and, and seeing what we could have done differently. I think part of it, too, is knowing what to do going forward. And if there are changes that need to be made, then... You know, better late than never. So there's a new study out that, that has an interesting look at, at where things went wrong or one aspect of what went wrong in Canada and, and some lessons to be learned going forward uh, that a relatively simple thing turned out to have a big impact. The uh, idea of shared accommodation. Keeping residents in ward-like shared accommodation can be lethal as the National Post reports on this study, that simply by eliminating four-person nursing home rooms, a lot of lives could have potentially been saved. So I want to uh, find out more uh, about uh, this study. So joining us on the line here this afternoon is uh, one of the authors of it, Dr. Nathan Stahl, is a geriatrician at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, research fellow at the University of Toronto. Dr. Stahl, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, so talk about this study, and were, were you sort of, from the get-go, looking at the impact of, of having four-person four nursing home rooms, or was it something else that kind of led you in that direction? Um, you know, so I think it's evident from many other sort of uh, fields when it comes to infection control that crowding is clearly not uh, a good thing when it comes to highly transmissible pathogen like COVID-19. And, you know, in the province of Ontario, where we where we took this data from, uh, you know, many of the homes are actually built to standards from the 1970s. And as you highlighted, many of the rooms uh, in these homes have four-person beds. And so what we were investigating, which seems like a very, as you also alluded to, um, self-evident question was, you know, what was the impact of having these shared rooms, given that we know how fast COVID-19 can spread in congregate settings? And you know, we, we did find that um, when we simulated that if you actually in the province of Ontario had converted all four bedrooms to two bedrooms, we could have avoided about a fifth of all infections, which is nearly a thousand infections and nearly a fifth of all deaths or 271 deaths. And so you know, we're not the only ones to raise uh, crowding as an important issue. But on the basis of this, actually, the province of Ontario actually changed the admission requirements moving forward that their nursing homes are no longer able to admit to four person rooms. Is that right? Now, some of this may seem self-evident, but what is it about those kinds of living conditions that, that lend themselves to, to the spread of this virus? And so nursing homes have really been described uh, as tinderboxes when it comes to COVID-19. And so, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of these homes have been actually locked down, so they've been re relatively closed environments. But the vector that's going between the community and the homes are obviously the workers who are unknowingly, in many cases, seeding these homes uh, with COVID-19. But once the infection gets in there, uh, the reason why nursing homes are so vulnerable is because these are congregate settings 
where there is crowding, especially when you have ward-based rooms. Uh, and the individuals who live there in Canada, about 70% of nursing home residents have dementia, 90% of them have some form of cognitive impairment, cannot easily practice physical distancing, cannot easily practice uh, hand hygiene the same way that you know, people who are cognitively intact or may have insight may be able to. Certainly there are some that are, that are able to do so. And so you're talking about crowded settings uh, with individuals who cannot practice some of the, the evidence-based ways we know to decrease transmission. And that's why they're like tinderboxes where simply the infections can rip through the whole home. And how common is it, uh, do we know, across Canada or even where were you in Ontario to have these kinds of living arrangements? So uh, we know in Ontario it's certainly uh, very common um, to have these. And in particular, um, you know, a lot of the, in Ontario, about almost 90% of infections occurred in just 10% of the homes. And so those homes were the ones that tended to be the most crowded. And when you're talking about the the homes that have these older design standards, in the province of Ontario alone, there are several hundreds of these older homes. I would argue that, and, and we know this from data, that the provinces that fared the worst with respect to long-term care death uh, were Ontario and Quebec. And these are the homes that have a lot of these older design standards, uh, particularly with these shared rooms. And is this simply a, a money issue that it's that there are lower costs involved in having you know four person rooms as opposed to two person rooms, or are there other reasons for it? I I would think it's probably a lot to do with cost. So um, certainly, you know, when these homes were built, uh, they weren't intended to last for fifty years. So. You know, when the, when the homes met the design standards of 1972 in the province of Ontario, I don't think that many people anticipated that here in 2020 we'd still be talking about the same the same facilities. So certainly there'd be a capital cost to retrofit or build a new home. And the other thing is when you have four people in a room as opposed to, uh, you know, a, a home that's entirely single rooms, the staffing requirements uh, are, are less because one person can or one worker can easily attend to four clients that are in a room as opposed to individual rooms uh, where, where they may have to. Um, you know, so I think there is a, a profit uh, or a cost aspect. And, and another important point here is that many of the homes in Ontario uh, that happened to have these older design standards were for-profit homes as opposed to non-for-profit or municipal homes. And so when you're talking about for-profit entities that are making a profit at the end of the year, need to decide where they're going to put that money. And they have this sort of impossible decision between do we give that money to our shareholders and our owners uh, and our investors, or do we reinvest that into the building? And I think, you know, some of the evidence here speaks for itself where they chose to put those monies. Right. And I suppose then if if we're going to make this change and and mandate that we don't have uh, four-person rooms, I mean, in in, in any one setting then, if you have a, a situation where, You've got a, a bunch of these accommodation uh, arrangements set up, and you decide, okay, no more four-person rooms are going to two-person rooms. Well, does that mean then you, you have to, to move people around to different homes? Do, do we run into to a space issue potentially then if, if we're now moving people around, maybe outside of the, the home that they're in? Yeah, absolutely. So in the province of Ontario now, uh, we've created a huge deficit of uh, nursing home accommodation. Um, because of the fact that they're no longer admitting to these these four-person rooms anymore. And so with with that being the case, you're going to need to, as you highlight, either invest more heavily in home care so that we can 
um, sustain people living in the community, many of whom are in crisis, as you all know, waiting mm-hmm. to get into long-term care. Uh, or we may have to get creative. And other jurisdictions have certainly got creative about making space because clearly homes are not going to be able to retrofit or build new spaces within the matter of weeks or months especially when we're anticipating a second wave potentially as early as the fall. And so other places have reappropriated spaces that may no longer or may not be used to the same extent that they were before the pandemic, like hotels, convention centers, these sorts of places. And I think all options are on the table. Um, We have, you know, the sort of dubious um, recognition uh, of having the most deaths um, of of 16 OECD countries that were compared, the highest proportion of deaths occurring in long-term care, and that's 80%. So this is a national shame, and I think all options are on the table, and we need to, you know, think about think about ways to protect people, but also to have countermeasures that if we're going to restrict access to long-term care for the safety of those who are currently in it, how do we make space for other people who need it? Right, and so as I said at the outset, this isn't just about going back and, and looking at we what we should have done differently, right? Obviously, this is about preparing for another wave of this, making sure that we don't make the same mistakes again. I think at this point, uh, hopefully, we're now learning those lessons, implementing those changes. Are, are you optimistic, then, that we, we are learning from our mistakes? Um, you know, it's a tough question. Uh, I think if you look across the country, there's been many instances where we have failed people in long-term care, and we haven't tended to actually make substantial change on this issue. This is clearly much more dramatic, much more catastrophic. The loss of life is incredible. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is we don't have a lot of time, um, and we, we have to remain extremely vigilant. You're talking about uh, a sector that's been neglected, not just, you know, this, this study that we did is one, one small area of it, which is the physical infrastructure. You're talking about longstanding issues with understaffing. Uh, there's chronic issues even today with access to personal protective equipment in homes across the country. Uh, we took a long time in, in, in many provinces, not all of them, but particularly in Ontario and Quebec, to prioritize testing to the nursing home uh, setting. And additionally, we still have the ongoing challenges of, you know, these individuals are at risk and living in a congregate setting and not able to practice physical distancing, masking and hand hygiene the same way as others do. So, you know, I think this is still a very, very at-risk sector. Um, many of the deficiencies that I highlighted still need to be addressed. Not all of them are going to be readily addressed easily. Uh, clearly, the physical infrastructure is one, but that's just one piece of the puzzle. Um, I am optimistic that we've brought light to this issue. I am not entirely optimistic that we're fully prepared for to weather a second wave in this vulnerable setting. Well, we'll, we'll leave it there for now then. Uh, Dr. Stahl, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Great. Thanks so much for having me. All right. And all the best. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Nathan Stahl. He's a, uh, a geriatrician at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, research fellow at the University of Toronto, one of the authors of this study looking at how uh, deaths in nursing homes in Canada could have been prevented. And what seems like a relatively straightforward and obvious kind of factor uh, wasn't sufficiently addressed and, and hopefully will be going forward. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.